Today's reading is Psalm 123. It can be found on page 572 of the Bible's Next Year Seeds, as well as on the screen. This is God's word, Psalm 123. I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven, as the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he shows us his mercy. Have mercy on us, O Lord, have mercy on us, for we have endured no end of contempt. We have endured no end of ridicule from the arrogant, of contempt from the proud. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, as was just said a moment ago, my name is Eric. It's, it's very, very good to be with you. Mark also encouraged me to say something human. Um, uh, it's true, I was, uh, I was a resident um, here like six, seven years ago, which meant that Mark you know, made me set things up and carry his luggage and, and do all sorts of things like that. Uh, and, and just recently, um, I decided to re-enter sort of a mentoring relationship with Mark because I decided I'd grown up in the Midwest and I was a Chicago Bulls fan my whole life and really hadn't paid much attention to the NBA, and I decided I was doing my, my kids a disservice by not uh, showing them the local team. So I thought, who do I get to help me learn a little bit about the Sacramento Kings? And, uh, and I chose Mark. Um, he did not tell me that it was gonna be a journey filled with so much suffering, however. <laughs> So I was sending him, te- like I started checking scores and watching games on TV a little bit and encouraging my kids to, to, to watch as well. And they, they, you know, their attention quickly waned as the losses piled up and so forth. So I'm like sending him text messages like, what, what did you get me into? Um, even though like during trade deadlines, he's on vacation, we're, I'm still texting back and forth. And anyway, uh, it's really good to be here. Thank, thank you so much for having me. Uh, would you join me briefly in a word of prayer? Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you on this morning hour from uh, a variety of of places, from spots on our own spiritual journey and uh, from spots in our lives. In many ways, we're a very diverse group. Some of us come here this morning and we're full of uh, faith and joy, eager to hear what you have to say to us. Some of us are here this morning and uh, we wonder if you exist or if you speak at all. Some of us are bored and apathetic and uh, aren't particularly interested one way or the other. We're not sure. Some of us come here and and life is going well. For some of us, we find ourselves in the midst of difficult situations of of suffering and sickness, of grief, uh, and all sorts of different things. So in many ways, we come and and we're a diverse group. But but in other ways, help us to see this morning that that all of us, in other ways, are very much the same. All of us are in search of meaning and looking for hope. And all of us, really, at the end of the day, are dependent on your grace. O God, our guide, set your path clearly before us and lead us to follow you willingly for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, uh, according to a recent article in The Atlantic that I read this week, um, and according to anyone that's probably tried to find lunch in Midtown recently, uh, the salad industry in this country is booming. Salad shops, specialty made-to-order salad shops, are earning more than $300 million a year in 2014, apparently, with some salad chains in the country experiencing double-digit percentage growth in sales. Now, even though salad has been around for years, and this is where uh, The Atlantic comes in helpful, 
Um, I learned that the ancient Greeks and Romans had an oil-based dressing that they put on raw vegetables. I also learned that in a ship that was sunk off the Aegean Sea that's assumed to be about 2,400 years old, they found oregano-flavored olive oil that was assumed to be a dressing for salad as well. Uh, in the United States, salad has generally been considered a side dish, but no longer. Uh, not, one salad chain has tripled the number of stores in the last year alone and averaged sales in two to three million dollars in revenue per location. Made-to-order salads have become especially booming during lunch. You find them popping up in airports and strip malls. They're very popular in urban centers, but also they become places to go for dinner. Now, interestingly, the restaurants that are primarily cashing in on the new health craze when it comes to salads are not widespread. The ones that are cashing in are the specialty salad shops. When asked why this seemed to be the case, Nick Kenner, CEO of Just Salad, a place I assume you can't get anything other than salad, Nick Kenner, the CEO, said this. He said, doing salad right is much more difficult than a lot of other food cuisines. When you go to traditional fast food restaurants, their salads don't look attractive or appealing. They don't catch your eye. And consumers purchase with their eyes. It all depends on where you look. Now, interestingly, the author of Psalm 123 would say the same thing. Not about marketing or salads or what you should have for lunch necessarily, but, but the author of Psalm 123 is essentially making that very same case. Where you look for the big questions in life, for hope, for security, for peace of mind, where you look in the midst of all the twists and turns that life inevitably brings, where you look matters. In fact, it all depends on where you look. So I want us to spend just a few moments together looking at this ancient poem, this song. I know the Psalms feature prominently in every service here at Christ... Uh, sorry, a little slip there. Uh, here at City Life Church. It's been a while. It's been like a year since I've been here. Um, you know, the, the Psalm called us to worship. I know you sing them regularly and they feature prominently in every service. But, but I want to spend just a few moments together looking uh, a little bit differently at Psalm 123. Now, it's known uh, right away from the beginning, there's a little post, uh, I wouldn't call it a postscript, the little heading at the top is it's referred to as a psalm of ascent. This part of a group of psalms, ancient poems and prayers and songs that would have been sung by pilgrims in the ancient world that were traveling to Jerusalem. Specifically, a group of people that were, that were scattered over hundreds of years across the region. They would make a trek to the capital city of Jerusalem to spend time in worship at the temple. For some people, they would go every year, and for some, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But most people, uh, most people that were of ancient Jewish ancestry in the ancient world would attempt to make some sort of trek to Jerusalem. And regardless of which way you approached the city, Jerusalem was set on a series of hills, actually, and so you would, you would literally ascend up into Jerusalem. And so as you did, down through the ages, there were specific ancient prayers and songs that would be sung by travelers on the road. You wouldn't make this journey by yourself or even just with your individual nuclear family. You'd make it with an extended group of people. And so as you went up the road, up into Jerusalem, with the city expanding before you, there were certain songs that would be sung, the Psalms of Ascent. And one of them was Psalm 123. 
As ancient pilgrims made their way up into Jerusalem, they would sing these lines, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sits enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of slaves look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a female slave look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Now, in the ancient world where slaves were grossly mistreated, this is a stark and uncomfortable metaphor for us on a whole list of levels. This is uncomfortable for us because that imagery of of slavery is grotesque. It's also uncomfortable for us because Uh, we don't particularly like being compared to slaves. We'd maybe rather prefer a slightly softer metaphor. Undersecretary, uh, ambassador, something along those lines. But the point of this ancient psalm is not in any way, shape, or form to condone slavery. The point here is to actually emphasize something else. Dependence. In a world where slaves could be so brutally mistreated... From the perspective of one that was enslaved, which it should be noted, the people who were singing these psalms, many of them had been, or in their ancestry, would have had it in their lineage. From the perspective of those folks who were first singing this, it all depended on whether the master was malicious or merciful. It's a song of dependence. And this ancient poem is operating under the assumption that if you stretch the metaphor and see it as if God is the one enthroned in heaven and everyone else is compared to slaves, well, then it all depends on what kind of king sits on the throne. Is the king malicious or merciful? Now, I recognize that that for some of you, this this sort of talk only confirms your suspicions about Christianity in in the first place. It's it's just another religion that's a coping mechanism for people in, in difficult times of their lives for people who can't hack it in any other way. If you, can't, if you can't just sort of handle the harsh reality of life, well, then there's religion to help you pat, pat you on the head, perhaps. But this is, again, important to remember. Who is primarily writing and then singing these ancient songs? These were folks well acquainted with the harsh realities of life. As I mentioned, they had been people who either themselves had been enslaved or people whose ancestors had been Many people for hundreds of years would have been singing this song as they went back into Jerusalem because they were allowed to do so under the dictatorship of a foreign king, not a king they could trust. They'd been allowed to go back to their homeland and rebuild the city and and rebuild the temple only a sliver of its former glory. And so this ancient psalm, for hundreds of years as people sang it, was not just a mark of dependence on God, it was also a song of immense longing. How long, O Lord, have mercy on us? How long do we have to endure this level of contempt? How long do we have to travel back to Jerusalem and to the temple because someone allowed us to do, instead of because this is something we just get to do on our own accord? How long do we have to actually be enslaved or near to it? It's a recognition, this ancient song, that things are not the way They should be. And that's precisely why these ancient poems, of which Psalm 123 is an exemplar, can be so helpful for us. Because these ancient songs teach us to pray. They give us a language to speak in the midst of the trying times in our lives, in the midst of our deepest longings. Down through the ages, these songs have continued to be sung 
as we join our voices with people who voice that deep longing. Have mercy on us. Be merciful. It's a plea for a merciful God to hear. Many of you know this. Whether you have prayed it specifically or not, we often pray, even whether you consider yourself religious or not, we pray and we hope and we long for things like, be merciful to me in the midst of my loneliness. When everybody else around me seems to have a meaningful relationship, be merciful to me when I feel so alone. Be merciful to me in the midst of depression. Be merciful to me in my physical sickness when I get a diagnosis that shatters my world or someone I love. Be merciful to me in my marriage. Be merciful to me in my relationships. Be merciful to me in the way that I fail at parenting day in and day out. Be merciful to me in a job I hate. This psalm, friends, teaches us how to pray in all those times in our lives where we don't have it all together, where we don't feel adequate or competent, when life isn't neat and tidy. In other words, most days for most of us. This ancient song teaches us how to pray. And I think it knows something about us, that regardless of your background or belief, whether you consider yourself religious or not, Christian or not, somewhere on the spectrum, we all look to something. We all lift our eyes somewhere. I made the, uh, earlier this week, I made the horrific mistake of answering a phone call from a number that I didn't recognize. Normally I don't do this, just let it go right to voicemail, and uh, if it's important, they'll leave a message. Um, unless, of course, you're my parents, then you just keep calling and never leave a message. I don't know if anybody else has that problem. Uh, and as soon as I picked it up, I knew immediately that I had made this horrific mistake. It was a telemarketer. Uh, they, they seem to be disguising these phone numbers better. It's not just 888 anymore. It's like somewhere in Utah or something. I don't know how they do that. But uh, it, it's a telemarketer, and without a moment's hesitation, he quickly launched into his script. And he's from a home security company. And he says, good afternoon, Mr. Dirksen. Let me ask you, how much is peace of mind worth to you? Now, normally, what I would say is, no thank you, not interested. And then I would do my best to be polite as he you know, went to page two of his script. And, and I would say again, no, thank you, not interested. And then that's the point where like, everybody gives up and we go home. Uh, what I, instead, I don't know why, but I, I was feeling particularly snarky or something. And so when he asked, how much is peace of mind worth to you? I responded with probably a lot less than whatever you're charging. Now, I had, of course, played right into his hands because he was expecting some sort of answer of that kind. And so uh, he, he went, I, I, I don't know if he was on script or not, because he began to wax eloquent in what I, was, I, I thought he was anyway. And so he said, oh, is that a fact, Mr. Dirksen? Well, we're all looking for peace of mind and security. So you need to ask yourself, Mr. Dirksen, is yours good enough? Now, I thought that was profound. I, to be clear, I did not buy what he was selling. But I thought that was something else. We're all looking for peace of mind, for security. Is yours good enough? We all lift our eyes somewhere. Some of us lift our eyes to our work. When we get the acclaim of our colleagues or we secure a promotion, when we get noticed at our job, get a bonus, or when we get the job we're looking for, then we feel secure. If our art 
gets noticed by our colleagues, then we feel some sort of peace of mind. We're on the right track. If our relationship status is secure, well, then we feel secure. Some of us lift our eyes to our children, hoping to either give them what we never had or to shield them from things that we had to go through. Some of us lift our eyes to our financial situation or our physical situation or our psychological situation. Some of us lift our eyes to whatever will just take the pain away for a while, just kind of numb it down. We all lift our eyes somewhere. Psalm 23, 123 knows this about us. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, is yours good enough? Is what you look to for security merciful or malicious? Psalm 123 would suggest that everything else you lift your eyes to for peace of mind and security at the end of the day is malicious. If you look to your work, what happens when the new person on the job gets the credit and you don't? How do you feel? What happens when the acclaim no longer comes from friends of yours who are artists and are no longer noticing your work? What happens when you're in a relationship and that other person lets you down? What happens when you look to a relationship and you begin to realize that you've been ping-ponging back and forth to various unhealthy relationships and maybe part of the problem is gasp with you? What happens when you recognize that your stuff is following you around wherever you go? If you lift your eyes to your children for security, what happens when you recognize you can't give them everything and you can't shield them from it all either? Psalm 123 reminds us, friends, that everything else you and I tend to look for, whether we look internally or externally for peace of mind and for security, it all lets us down. At the end of the day, they are all malicious. There is one place to look, to lift your eyes, that is merciful. Our eyes look to the Lord our God, the ancient poet writes, till he shows us his mercy. This, this old song teaches you and I how to pray, how to be humble, how to trust, how to plead for mercy, not hoping that God will be merciful. But Christians have continued to sing this ancient poem on the pilgrimage of your life and mine, believing and trusting, not hoping that God has been merciful, but believing that in Jesus, he already has been. That when we look to Jesus, what we see is God showing us mercy. When we lift our eyes to a man on a cross, what we're seeing is God coming to us on our journey in the midst of all of our contradiction and mess, taking on the ridicule and contempt and the longing that we pray about, taking it onto himself, cutting the loop and refusing to pass it back. When we lift our eyes to the cross, friends, we are seeing the one enthroned in heaven coming down to us and dying the death of a slave in order to lift you up as a son or daughter of the king. Because this is so, Christians believe that you can continue praying these sorts of words. You can make them your own. You can be saturated in them. You can learn to sing them and pray them and speak them because it helps you to know where to lift your eyes when trouble comes.
When we make these prayers our own, we're taught a sort of deep humility that runs counter to what we think of ourselves and often the narrative that we're told. That we don't have to make it all on our own. That it's okay to depend on others and depend on God. That humility actually is a virtue to be cultivated. We're taught a deep humility that, rec- that, that encourages us to recognize just how dependent we are. A humility that encourages us to pray with and then for others. The psalmist moves from speaking just about him or herself to praying for other people. Even in the midst of our pain, we still pray with and for others. When we immerse ourselves in this kind of psalm, we're taught a deep trust that recognizes and helps us and gives us words to pray when we can barely speak. When contempt and trouble appear to encompass us on all sides. A trust that recognizes at the end of the day, God has already been merciful to me. So come what may, through the strength of the Spirit, I can choose to trust. Knowing full well, I'm not guaranteed that those external situations in my life are magically going to disappear. No, 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 actually the opposite seems to be true. But I've been given words, I've been schooled in a language in these ancient poems to see me through. When we pray this old song, friends, we're taught to lift our eyes beyond all of those other things that end up being malicious, beyond all those other things that at the end of the day let us down, and lift our eyes to one who has shown us mercy and has promised that he will do so. As we pray these old songs, friends, we are reminded day in and day out, it really does matter where you look. All of the Netherlands was terrified in 1938. Hitler had already taken control of Austria, and when Poland was invaded, it became apparent to everyone living in the Netherlands that they were soon to be in the crosshairs. In 1940, in May of 1940, their worst fears came true. Hitler's troops marched into the Netherlands, and in five days, it took five days, it had fallen. During the occupation, a young woman named Diet Iman found herself as part of the Dutch resistance, hiding Jewish people and other people fleeing from Hitler, and for two years she was on the run herself because she had been found out. Along the way, in the midst of her turmoil, she, she met and fell in love with a young man who decided to join the resistance in the cause himself named Hein. The two got engaged and they decided that they were going to work as the resistance and not get married because that would endanger one another until after the conflict was over. Thinking back on the two years that she was on the run, she said this. She said, I loved to pray the Psalms because no matter what I was feeling at the time, if I was scared or worried or lonely, those Psalms had, the feeling that had those same feelings in them too. Two years in, when both she and her fiancé, Hein, were eventually caught and imprisoned, they were immediately separated and so they were forced to write letters to each other. Paper was scarce, and so they would often write letters on scraps of paper barely big enough. Sometimes they even used toilet paper because they all, that's all they could. And they would then smuggle them out of prison camps to try and keep in touch, hoping upon hope that they wouldn't lose each other in the chaos of World War II. When the war finally ended and the Netherlands was free, uh, as was happened for so many people, Diet found herself back in her native homeland, but not knowing where her fiancé had gone. People were scattered throughout Eastern Europe. And so she and a friend of hers would get together and they would pray together because her friend had also uh, lost her husband, wasn't sure where he was. When they got together to pray, they prayed the Psalms. 
They would pray things like, Have mercy on us, Lord, have mercy. Be merciful to us, for we have endured no end of contempt. One day when she was staying with her parents, a neighbor came to the door of the home where she was staying and handed her a letter. The letter notified her that her fiancé had died four months earlier in the concentration camp at Dachau. That night, writing in her diary, she wrote a letter to her now-deceased fiancé. After learning of his death, she wrote these questions. She wrote, why? Why did I have to go through all this? Why couldn't I have also died along with him? Hein, why did you leave me alone? And what am I going to do without you? She continued on in her diary for a bit, and then she wrote this. She wrote, now I will have to put into practice what I once told you. Even if something should happen to us, we must be grateful for the beautiful years that we had. These few years will be worth all the rest of my life, worth even the sorrow. God, give me the strength to go on from day to day, from hour to hour. To you, Lord, I lift up my eyes. To you who sit enthroned in heaven. Would you join me in prayer? Guide us, O God, by your word and by your spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.